edition of the Crash the Pond podcast. We're here to discuss a pivotal game in Anaheim Ducks history, Game 5 of the Western Conference Final in the 2006-2007 season. You may remember this game if you're a longtime Ducks fan or a newly minted Ducks fan as the game where the Ducks took a 3-2 lead over the mighty Detroit Red Wings on their route to the Stanley Cup that they won that year, the first and only Stanley Cup in franchise history. This game had some twists, had some turns, uh, a 2-1 to victory in overtime. Timu Solani, the game winner, and of course, Scott Niedermeyer with about as dramatic of a game-winning goal as you could possibly ask for on the power play late, and I mean late in the third period with under a minute left. So just a kind of a, a very memorable game, a historic game for this Ducks franchise, uh, one that prominently featured some memorable names. I already mentioned Solani and Niedermeyer, but Chris Pronger had his fingerprints all over this game. Not necessarily for the best reasons, but definitely had his fingerprints all over it. Um, eh, this, in comparison to the rest of the series, this was mild from Chris Pronger. Seeing yeah, as, he, he only took two penalties in, in key moments. Well, only two. See, seeing as in uh, the prior game, he did not play because he was suspended for that game. So yes. Yes. In, in terms of Chris Pronger, and also we can get into it a little bit more later, he also had some very positive moments that you and I were, were texting about with certain things that he would do that it was so noticeable how good he was. Yeah, so... Before we get into some of the superlatives from this game, so the, the things that stood out, um, let's set the scene a little bit. Or sorry, <laughs> I jumped ahead. So we've got a few categories that we're going to cover. And just so the listeners kind of get a feel for where this is going to go, uh, we're going to talk about where we were when this happened, the lasting legacy of this game. We're going to set the scene a little bit, getting into the actual game itself. We've already done a little bit of that going to go over things that aged well, things that did not age so well, um, the most rewatchable sequence of the game, uh, the biggest heat check performance, the most unanswerable questions about this game, and, and, and a couple other things as well. So we're going to get into all of that. But, you know, this was in 2007. So where were you when this happened, Jake? Where I were would you have, at the time? I would have been a sophomore in high school. And so that's aging uh, myself right there for everyone out there. Although I'm pretty open with old I am on this show. Um, and I was a sophomore in high school. And I can remember, I think, and let me see if I can actually find this information. But I believe this was like a 1 p.m. start. It was something along those lines where it was a, a pretty early in the day start, um, at least on the West Coast. And so um, I can remember kind of exactly where I was at every moment in this game. I can remember what I what I did, me kind of jumping around my parents' house uh, when Scott Niedermeyer scored the game winning or game time goal, and when Tamu Solani scored the game winner, I remember kind of running around the house, and it's one of those moments for me that sticks with me that I can remember kind of exactly where I was, exactly what I was doing. I'm pretty sure I was wearing I have and I I had and I still currently have. Um, an 0506 third jersey, so the uh, black and eggplant jersey with Anaheim Mighty Ducks kind of in script across the chest, a Rob Niedermeyer version of it. And I think for almost every single playoff game of this run, 
uh, I wore that jersey because I was superstitious and thought that me not wearing the jersey would cause the Ducks to lose. And so I made sure to wear that jersey for every single game. And I can remember. Um, so this uh, this was a this is a game that for me kind of sticks with me. And I can remember a lot about it. I remember exactly where I was. Yeah, I your your memory is obviously a lot more vivid than mine since um, I'm not a Ducks fan, so I didn't have that experience. I mean, I would have been in eighth grade, <laughs> still in middle school. Um, so yeah, I was uh, a young buck. This would have been only my second season really following hockey extremely closely. Um, well, the only th- the only other thing I can note is this was my first season uh, playing goalie in rec leagues. So (laughs) it's, it's funny for me also, this is, I've been a, I think I would consider myself a lifelong duck slash mighty ducks fan as a kid, loving them, growing up with them and that type of stuff. But basically after the Oh three cup run, and I can even remember during the Oh three cup final run, I wasn't like die a diehard ducks fan. Like I watched the games, but it wasn't like I lived and died with the team or watched every game. And it's one of those where I was more so a kid. And I can remember, because of the angels winning the world series in 02, I was probably more so a bigger angels fan than I was a ducks fan around that time. And there was something for me with the Oh five Oh six playoffs that kind of sucked me in. Um, and the ducks made a run to the conference final and, uh, went to a couple games and, uh, me and my dad ended up going to a fair amount more games in the Oh six Oh seven season. And that is really, I think the first season where I can remember watching, basically every single game uh, of that season. It's really the first season I can remember that doing that. And so it's funny that you mentioned that this is probably only the second season that you can recall watching almost every game. Cause this is probably the first season for me. Yeah. Yeah. So the, that's the league at that time. It was only the second season uh, after the, the Oh four Oh five lockout. So the league was still in a bit of a transition phase with, the game speeding up, a lot of skilled players being, I mean, basically two prospect classes being infused into the league in 05, 06. And so you had kind of that clash between the older school style of play and uh, all that youth and skill and also the new rules that were more, I would say, offensive friendly. Well, actually, I shouldn't even say that. They were just the rules being called properly, uh, well, which they hadn't been for about a decade. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny looking at this Ducks team because, yes, even though the game did definitely open up more, this Ducks team was built as kind of a old-school style team, and that kind of got the Ducks uh, a reputation that I think stuck with them for a very long time, even when they didn't necessarily have those types of players under Bruce Boudreau, but the Big Bag Ducks uh, moniker because... Uh, Brian Burke kind of built this team to where they could play with anyone of any and of any style. I mean, having both Scott Niedermeyer and Chris Pronger on the blue line allowed them to have two different elite defensemen that played the game very differently. Um, and you look at the forward group, you have formative years for, for Getzloff and Perry, but what were still very effective years from them. Um, I believe over the course of the season, they were both 50 plus points. Um, and so I'll double check that for sure. But they were on a line together that played the way that Getzloff and Barry kind of always played together. And then you also had the top line with Andy McDonald and Tamus Lani, who are kind of polar opposites, more so a transition style game with their speed. And so it's just kind of funny. Um, 
how that team was built, that they were kind of a throwback, but also could play any way and could play a bit of an up-tempo game if needed. Yeah, so moving into the lasting legacy of this game, that that was kind of my takeaway from it as well, is that although the memory of this team and I think the perceived legacy is that the Ducks won on having the, the bigger, more intimidating, more bruising team, it's not so much that they were bigger, it's that they had a good combination of a little bit of everything. And and they had guys who could skate, who could possess the puck down low, who could make plays. Um, and yeah, it is kind of funny that Niedermeyer and Pronger are kind of that dichotomy where you have the smooth skating Niedermeyer and Chris Pronger who uh, breathes and takes a penalty. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean... I, that is to me, but the real, the, the enduring legacy of this team isn't even so much what they um, accomplished within the, within the franchise itself. It's that teams after this around the league, it's a copycat league, tried to emulate the Ducks for years to come. I mean, Brian Burke tried to replicate it almost to a T in Toronto by hiring yeah. the same coach, Randy yeah. Carlisle. Um, you saw the, the Flyers tried that at varying points. The Boston Bruins went that route, although... I think the Bruins probably have done it and did it the most successfully of any team. But it is interesting how there was a lot of varying success in terms of teams trying to copy that that hard-hitting style. I think that it's always interesting when you see which team wins and not only how, how they win, but how their win will be interpreted and how teams around the league will start to copy that. Yeah, so real quick, uh, Getzloff ended that season with 58 points in 82 games. Perry had 44 points in 82 games. Um, But yeah, the lasting legacy of this game specifically is interesting. And it's funny because you and I were texting before recording this, and I kind of said historic. And while I think you are correct that historic probably isn't the right way to term uh, this game because there's not exactly uh, uh, a historic in terms of performance or anything like that, but this is a game that uh, the legacy of it is, at least to me, and I think to a lot of Ducks fans, the cup win was really dependent upon this game. And, and to me, if I were to look back on the entire uh, 07 cup run, this was the most pivotal game out of the entire set because you look at the the series before it. Uh, the, the first round, they were against Minnesota. They won that uh, series in five games. Um, not exactly that close. Um the they were actually up three nothing and lost game four in Minnesota, and then against Vancouver they ended up winning that series in five games. Um, and I don't remember exactly, but I think they lost either game one or game two at Honda Center, um, and then ended up winning uh, in game five. And I believe single or double overtime with Scott Niedermeyer scoring off a big hit from Rob Niedermeyer. And then uh, so neither of those series were close. And then this was the first series that really pushed the Ducks because the Red Wings um, and I know a lot of Ducks fans myself included have ill will towards the Red Wings because that was actually a really fun and kind of big rivalry for the Ducks for a long time. Um, and, uh, but the Red Wings were a really good team and by really good, they were, you look at a lot of metrics, they were historically good this year. And so this was the first team to really give the Ducks a big test, um, and give them, and the fact that, both teams split the first four games. I mean, the Ducks won. Uh, well, they won game one in Detroit, but then lost game two. They uh, lost game three at home, and then won with a shorthanded roster in game four. 
And so this series was all tied 2-2 with neither uh, with the Red Wings only being able to string together two straight wins in Game 2 and Game 3. Um, but a lot of times we tend to see that Game 5 becomes a pivotal game in series. And if you can win that, it's kind of – it helps. And I know the Ducks have had a little bit of bad history with Game 6s um, after winning Game 5 and then losing Game 7 of late. But Game 5 is pivotal because you can get that 3-2 lead. And so – in my opinion, game six was not close. Um, the Ducks won that pretty handily at home. And so this was the the turning point of the series, this game five win that kind of sucked the life out of Detroit. And then the cup final, it, I mean, the Senators were overmatched. I, I think the Eastern Conference was a fair amount weaker. And so this, this game, the lasting legacy to me personally, I think a lot of Ducks fans out there is this was the game that won the cup for them. Yeah. I mean, I think the lasting legacy of this game from a Detroit perspective as well, is that you look at this run of Red Wings hockey that, you know, the, the 25 straight playoff appearances or, you know, 20 something, whatever. Um, they had a three peat mixed into that run. And um, as far as, or sorry, was it a three peat or a repeat? I don't know. The point being they were miraculously upset in 05, 06 by the Oilers a season where they were the, the first seed and should have probably absolutely mopped the floor with the eighth seed Oilers. And then in 06, 07, they narrowly lose to a good Ducks team in the Western Conference final. And then the two following years, they go to the cup final against Pittsburgh. So if you look at that four-year stretch for the Red Wings, there is absolutely a universe where they come out of that with at least two cups. They they could have they could have potentially had a three peat because of the back to back cup appearances in 07 and 08. and then you would imagine if they get past the Ducks in 07, in 06, 07, then they move on to the uh, and 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 beat the Senators. So yeah, pretty impressive stuff um, from that Red Wings era. Just some really really good teams, some really dominant teams. So yeah, that's kind of the legacy from a Red Wings perspective is just how this could have extended the that that cup final appearance uh, yeah. window. Well, yeah, and so just... And sorry, uh, I meant 08 and 09 for the, and, the cup appearances. Yes, cup and appearances. I, I want to touch on this really quickly because Lewis uh, brought it up in our Twitch chat is how many times do the Ducks play the Red Wings in the playoffs? I think that's also a point of this when I mentioned that it, it kind of makes this stick out more is that the Ducks were able to beat what was a heated rival. Um, I, I don't know if that if Ducks-Red Wings sticks out to you as being a rivalry, but I think to a lot of Ducks fans and even to Red Wings fans, I've actually reached out to a friend of mine and he agreed that it was a rivalry because here, here are the playoffs where the Ducks and Red Wings played each other. You have 97, 99, 03, 07, 09, and 2013. And so as of 2007, the only year that the Ducks made the, the playoffs and did not play the Red Wings was 05, 06. Right. So yeah. every single year the Ducks had made the playoffs, they had played the Red Wings. So that kind of sets it up for the the two teams facing each other in the playoffs and the Red Wings getting sweeping the Ducks the first two times and then the Ducks kind of returning the favor in 03 um, with that upset in the first round. And so that kind of set the stage for this series being two juggernauts of the West. I believe they were the number one and number two seed of the West and yeah. uh, rivals also. Yeah, I mean, this this Ducks team was very good. They were They ranked fifth in shots against that season and seventh in shots for so really good at 
getting shots on net and really good at keeping them away from their own net. Uh, this was a very, very good team, very strong in both, uh, both sides of the game. Now, going into this particular game, though, in game five, um, I think the, the biggest storyline is that Chris Pronger was suspended for game four and was returning from his one-game suspension yep. um, in Detroit. And so he was mercilessly booed every time he touched the puck, which, you know, for Chris Pronger is just water rolling off the camel's back. But he, um, if you just go back to that hit, I, I do distinctly remember watching that that play. I don't know if I watched the entire game at the time, but it was the double hit on Tomas Holmstrom at the end of that 5-0 loss in yep. Anaheim. And yep. it was not a good play by Pronger. You know, Niedermeyer comes in to finish a check, and they kind of come in at the same time. And Pronger, either way, regardless of whether Rob Niedermeyer had been there or not, he gets his hands way up high, pushes um, Tomas Holmstrom needlessly, and the result of the play had to be considered as well. I mean, split open his head. <laughs> Uh, on the glass so and it required 13 stitches so I would I would say that although it was kind of controversial at the time I think with uh the standards that we have now probably the right call uh yeah probably you would say um but yeah the that was not a great hit and guess who was actually at that game this uh, you? guy yeah that was uh, I remember leaving that game feeling very down um, very sad, uh, knowing that the ducks had just lost five, nothing to go down two to one. And that was really kind of the first moment that I saw that the ducks were kind of vulnerable. Um, because yeah. like I said, up until that point, they had kind of had their way with Vancouver, had their way with Minnesota. And this was kind of that, that counter punch. Cause the ducks, uh, yeah, neither of those teams were anywhere close to the no. level of the red wings. Um, the Canucks weren't quite the Canucks that would, go on to make the cup final in, in 11 and the wild were, you know, happy to be there. <laughs> yeah. And I think I misspoke. I think the ducks actually won game two, not game one of the series. So sorry about that. If for anyone out there that uh, was screaming at me for getting that little fact wrong. Um, but yeah, so um, this, uh, this game was setting up to be a good one with how the series was going. Yeah, and so that and so just going to that game, all the drama and just the fact that Pronger would be back on uh, enemy soil was gonna make for good theater, if nothing else. So let's uh let's get into our first category here, things that aged well. So give me your first thing that aged well. I have a I have a, I have three here. Um, things that aged well. Jean Sebastian Jaguer's performance. Okay. Um, would you consider this aging well? Uh, Tamus Lani's game-winning goal. Well, hold on. Uh, you're not going to talk about Jaguar's performance? Oh, I was going <laughs> to name a couple, then go into it. Sure. John Spashing Jaguar in this game was, this was one of his best games of the series. In my mm -hmm. opinion, he had a 973 save percentage in this game. Detroit was actually peppering the net in this game. And it's one of those where it's funny on rewatch, um, now with how I view the game as compared to how I viewed it back then is more so a fan. Whereas now I feel like I watch games a little bit differently, trying to view how they're performing and things like that. Um, this was not necessarily a great game or a great performance from the ducks. They got peppered uh, in terms of shots on goal. We don't exactly have metrics uh, shot metrics for games back then, but 
Uh, Jaguar had 37 shots on goal against and only allowed one goal in the process over a 70-minute game. And the only goal that came against him was kind of a bit of a fluke goal. Um, kind of a weird shot from the point that knuckled and beat him yeah, up high. I think he should have probably stopped that probably. one. Probably. <laughs> but that's my point is that yeah. the only goal that was get, that went in was a weird one. And yeah. that's how good he was in this game. And so I, I think the yeah. Ducks probably did a pretty good job of limiting in terms of chances and the quality of those shots. But still, 973 save percentage in this game. 37 shots on goal against. That is a lot of shots to face. Yeah, it's interesting because – the shot, the goal by Andreas Alilia uh, in the second period, Jaguar was extremely deep in his net, and it was a rising kind of half slap shot from the top of the circle, and it just kind of froze Jaguar. Um, I think Niedermeyer was sliding out to block it, and it, it it's interesting because you, you watch throughout the game, and Jaguar was pretty conservative, a lot deeper in his net, and... It's, it is interesting as well because I don't think that although the Red Wings had 37 shots, they the Ducks did pretty well to keep them to the outside. There, yeah. were, not, there were not very many clean looks for, uh, for the Red Wings for that potent Red Wings offense. The Red Wings took a lot of point shots. I don't know if it was just uh, a product of that particular game and what was available to them, but they loved to get it back to the point. I mean, I can't really blame them when you have Nicholas Lidstrom, but it was interesting how they – had all these great forwards and maybe just in that game with, with the limited amount of space, they figured it was better to just get shots on net from, from, uh, from the blue line. Mm -hmm. So my, my first thing that aged well, uh, these ducks jerseys. (laughs) So this look for the ducks, um, I think that it's not the absolute best version of it. It got a little better when they switched over to the Reebok edge template, but I kind of like this more clean cut look for the ducks a little less busy of a graphic. And I like how it has the swoop at the bottom of the jersey, which is a bit more reminiscent, actually absolutely reminiscent of the Mighty Ducks jerseys, mm-hmm. but but with kind of a more a more serious tone to it. I really think that that template is something that they should think about bringing back. So I thought the, I think these jerseys actually age pretty well. It's funny because when the Ducks first switched over to what they have now, I thought, that they were making a serious upgrade. And it's funny how I've, I've kind of come back on that as time has worn on. Yeah. I'm not the biggest fan of the 0607 Jersey necessarily, because I think that the, the ducks, uh, word print logo looks kind of odd on that Jersey. I don't know why it just kind of looks a little bit off on the bigger, uh, Jersey, uh, that was prior to the Reebok edge. I think that the year next year was the worst of that though, because they shrunk the logo on the Reebok edge and then they eventually made it bigger again and then it was fine. Yes. Yeah. They probably should go, would have, should have gone to just a web D on that Jersey and then would have been fine. But yes, I think, uh, comparing that to the current set, that Jersey was way more of a primary Jersey. A well, home it, look, in a way. It, it looks, it looks like more of a pro Jersey. If that makes Wh- any sense. Whereas I think the current home in the way that home, the current home Jersey was fine as a third Jersey. Cause Third jerseys are kind of where you can be odd, where you can do something different. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think that that jersey was fine as a third jersey. Now that it's every single game is when it's kind of rough. I, I think yeah. that that jersey from 0607 going into the Reebok Edge format was uh, was definitely kind of a better home and away format than the current one. Well, it's interesting because that specific jersey from 0607, <laughs> this is may sound kind of odd, but... It's one of the better jerseys in terms of how it looks from behind the jersey. 
So the the font that they used for the numbers, that was the first time that they had used it, that they introduced it. And I thought in that, that kind of webbed D font that they used for the, the scripting as well. And I thought it actually looked really good. And the way that they used the swoop for the sleeves and uh, the bottom of the jersey, it was just a nice mesh of the of the two of the newer style and the previous style. And I think that there's there's a kind of simplicity to it that I enjoy. And I mean, obviously it wasn't perfect, but they should. Uh, I think that they they kind of went a little too overboard with with the look now. Um, by by the way, mm-hmm. the gold outline on the numbers. Th- way superior to orange outline on the numbers that they currently use. Yeah. It just looks so much better. That's what better. I'm saying. It, it was a good look. Like it was well, a no, good looking e- jersey from behind. Even even on the 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 current home jersey when it was a third jersey, they had gold outline on the numbers. And I just think it looked cleaner. Yeah, it it just it popped a, just a little bit more. Um but yeah, just a a good look, uh, an unheralded look, but it it's one that has actually aged better than I expected. Okay, so your next thing that aged well from this game. Um, the next thing that aged well from this game would have been the Solani overtime winner. Um, I don't know if this is necessarily something that you could say aged well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't think it was up for debate. But, yeah. But sure. I, I, I guess that's kind of the only issue, uh, with it. Um, with putting it in this category because it kind of more so fits a different category, but, um, it still is just such a beautiful shot. I, I think that that's more so why I'm saying it, it, it aged well because it it's just such a great forehand backhand gets Hasek on the on the ground and is able to put it top shelf. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna go with that. So my next thing that aged really well is just the 2006 2007 Detroit Red Wings. Uh, they played a really nice style, even in the playoffs, even in a really kind of mucked up series against a physical Ducks team. Uh, the way that they played, the amount of skill that they had on that team, uh, just really impressive. And so, and I'm just going to piggyback into my next thing that aged well, just Pavel Datsuk, just everything he does when you watch that guy play. Um, there was one sequence in the in the first period where Datsuk comes into the into the duck zone with speed, controls the puck, tries to get it on net, loses it, and then the ducks recover possession. And he tracks all the way back from basically the ducks uh, goal line all the way back to the circles in his own zone to break up a play. He was just such a such a fundamentally sound player, so skilled, so smart. And I really do think that if he had come into the league in let's say you know, today's era, even in the last five years, as opposed to when he came in in 2002, that he would have been one of the most dominant players. I mean, he still had a really good career, but wasn't necessarily the most dominant. And so, yeah, I think Pavel Datsuk is the thing that aged well the most watching this game, just in terms of who would, who would maybe perform the best if you put, if you just drop them into today's game with, with how the game is played now. Under that kind of context, sure. The only thing I'll say is, he did take the penalty at the end of the game and whether you want to debate whether it's a legit penalty or not, which I originally actually remembered it being iffier than it was. It actually, I mean, no, it was I, a penalty. It was definitely a penalty. The fact that he took that penalty that gave the ducks, the power play that they eventually scored on to tie the game. Um, that kind of is a only negative. I think oh, against yeah. I mean, the, in the, this the, game specifically, I mean, sure. But the Red Wings should have 
what should have had that game oh, in the bag. Probably. If Jay Shager does not point. if Jay Shager does not play like he does yeah, in that if, game, the Red Wings probably if win if this Nicholas game. If Nicholas Strom doesn't doesn't hit the post in the second period yeah. or start so of the third. The, uh, I want to say one other thing kind of on that same note of Datsuk mm-hmm. uh that aged the best, Scott Niedermeyer. Yeah. He <laughs> was both him and Pronger were just so good. And it's funny cuz the Ducks have not had anyone on their blue line close you know, it's to funny. that quality since Niedermeyer. I'm actually not as I'm actually not as convinced Pronger would have aged as well, or ages as well now. Well, I he no, was good. I, Don't get me wrong. I he think was good. Pronger still would have aged fine. I think this Pronger, maybe Blues Pronger, would have would have been fine in today's game. That but, that one move where he got mm-hmm. the guy to bite hard on the shot fake and then just kind of yeah. held it and went around him. It's just that type of yeah. patience, patience and vision. That's the type of thing that would keep him, and that's more so what I'm thinking about with Pronger. Um, that would keep him uh, going in the modern day game is, yeah, is that type of play. Yeah, exactly. And and that would probably be accentuated a lot more. Okay. Let's get into things that did not age well. Unfortunately, maybe this says something about me, but my list here is a lot longer. Wow. <laughs> things that did not age well. This is a famous line from Eddie Olchick. So this is with 147 left in the third period uh, of this game. Randy Carlisle pulls his goalie when Pavel Datsuk takes that penalty you just mentioned. The Ducks are down 1-0. And Eddie Olchick says, that is very aggressive coaching by Randy Carlisle. There's 147 <laughs> left. It is, that, that is not, I mean, in today's Wait, game, that is not aggressive at all. That how, is just, you should be doing that. How and then many? he even, and he, he actually went on to say, you should wait at least 20 to 30 seconds to see what happens next, to see if you get possession of the puck. How many of your what age the worst just has to do with the commentary? Uh, there's a few. There's actually <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> but that just didn't age well because we know now yeah. that yeah. that is not that you should be more uh, aggressive at the end of the game. Um, and look, it paid off. Uh, and it's funny because after the Ducks scored, Pierre Maguire, adding to the kind of weird tension between him and Eddie Olchick, says, I like the aggressive coaching by Randy Carlisle. Yeah. So, um, but that was that that was a a good call by Randy Carlisle, and maybe if he had maintained that kind of more aggressive style, more forward thinking style later into his career, may have had a bit more success. Yeah. Um, what age the worst to me? I'm gonna kind of go in the similar route. Some of Randy Carlisle's decisions. Um, you and you I. Text- Rob, you mean Rob Niedermeyer in the power play? Is I mean for you? Todd Marchant on the power play on the first. <laughs> Todd Marchant on the first power play unit. Yeah. To take faceoffs. Well, Todd uh, Marchant was on the first line. Uh, that's true. He was. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some very confusing moments. Uh, and well, also I think part the, of it was I also think two was defensemen hurt. on the power play did not age well. <laughs> yes, but I, I think that some of Randy Carlisle's decisions, like yes, having Todd Marchant there as compared to I believe Andy McDonald wasn't even on the first unit, and you also have a young Corey Perry. And the fact that you put Todd Marchant, who... Well, even me, Dustin Penner would be a good choice for that spot yeah, at that time. Let, let me see very quickly if I can find it. But Todd Marchant... Uh, Todd Marchant had 23 points uh, in 56 games over the course of the season. Um, Corey Perry had 44 in 82. Um, Dustin Penner had 45 in 82. Um I believe Chris Kunitz was hurt, so that's why he was not in there, but he had 60 and 81. So there were definitely other options, and 
to go with Todd Marchant is definitely an odd one, but also is a completely on-brand uh, decision for Randy Carlisle. Well, I just think that that's a thing that just didn't age well, period, from this game is just watching the power plays, watching how they operated. It's funny, the only times where the power plays really looked effective is when they would go into the, the umbrella, the 1-3-1, one, one. Um, when they would do two, you know, when you would see Pronger and Niedermeyer going D to D on the power play, it just wasn't going anywhere. So it is interesting how, you know, now, honestly, much thanks to analytics, we know that there are better ways to do that. I mean, also partially because teams like the Capitals, especially the Capitals, have shown that, hey, never mind if you have a Hall of Fame, maybe greatest goal scorer of all time on the left side, if you can just set up a system where you're closer to the net with one-timer options, that is superior to two D-men at the blue line just throwing pucks on net and hoping that they get tipped. So, yeah, that did not age well. Here's another thing that really didn't age well. Joe Louis Arena camera angle. Oh, oh. My, my favorite thing about that is at least four to five times a period, they would have to switch it to this the high insanely angle. far camera angle because fans would be standing up and they would block yes. the way. And so that was pretty annoying. That did not make for the best viewing experience. And uh, although Joe, Joe Louis arena is obviously a historic arena uh, in the sports universe, camera angle did not age well. Yeah. That I remember at the time being very annoyed by that. And that entire final sequence that the, the Ducks score the game tying goal in that is done with that high camera angle. Because mm-hmm. all of the, the Red Wings fans are standing. So, yeah, uh, that barn was uh, definitely showing its age at that point in time. And probably a good thing that the Red Wings got a new uh, arena. So, yeah. Um, so, what aged the worst? I have one more. This game's entertainment value. So. Well, it's a- well, let me just preface that by saying that the entertainment value of playoff games is more about their importance. Yes. As opposed so, to the on-ice product. <laughs> that That's kind of my point here is that um, in my brain, I remember this game as being highly entertaining back and forth. I don't know why I remembered it be, having a fair amount of shots. Turns out most of those shots were just taken by the Red Wings and that was it. And now part of this probably is because uh, I was a big J.S. Jaguar fan. He was probably my favorite player on this team. And so any performance, to me at that time, Jaguar having an outstanding performance kind of made this game memorable for me. But I think kind of moving towards my the way I watch hockey, I think is different now. And I think also our standard for hockey is different now than it was back then because of how the game has evolved. And so I think jumping back into that game it, it was definitely interesting, and I think that it didn't hold the same entertainment value for me personally that it probably did because I mentioned this to you today. I've probably watched this game five, six times, but it's probably been a good five or six years since I watched it because way back when had the DVDs, watched this game multiple times because of its importance. And so um, don't let me tell you what's entertaining or not for you because I mean, yeah, you are, you are a wrestling fan. So it is, it's, we can't everything is subjective. Everything is subjective. Wrestling is a subjective art form. Um, but yeah, yep. There's that face had to do it. Um, uh, but, uh, 
For me personally, what aged the worst was the entertainment value of this game. I think there are moments of this game that are entertaining that will stick with you. But I think if on the whole, this entire the entirety of this game, it's not a game that had a lot of goals. It didn't have highlight real plays. It didn't really meet kind of criteria that allowed for it to be entertaining by that standpoint. How many highlight plays did it have? Maybe two? Two. <laughs> I mean, outside of the Ducks, two goals. Maybe a couple of maybe one of the posts that that got hit that went through J.S. Jaguar. Maybe a couple of Jaguar saves that he made throughout the game, but it, not a very not a very high octane game uh, no. at all. Okay, well, but there were some memorable sequences though. Yes, um, maybe that weren't scoring that that we'll get into. Okay, so I have a couple of other things that did not age well. Ducks' lack of discipline, <laughs> shockingly, did I mean, not age well. Standard uh, standard so of to, that year. And so the Ducks teams. To start the third period, the Ducks got a very fortuitous power play, um, which was at a key moment because obviously they're down 1-0, and so now would be a good time to score a goal. Uh, instead, Chris Pronger takes a penalty, uh, he, and that was obviously after being suspended during this series, would also be suspended in the final as well. So, yeah, Chris Pronger just... I mean, it must be great being Chris Pronger, just... Just still being that good and kind of being untouchable as a yep. result. Another thing that aged really poorly in that category of lack of discipline, Joe Motzko, if you remember that name, taking a holding penalty in the offensive zone with four minutes left down a goal. That, not a good look. Uh, not a that good look. did not age well either. And then Travis Moen taking a holding penalty in overtime after getting beaten in the neutral zone. So this team took a lot of bad penalties. Not not good penalties. Yeah. Uh, and then another thing that I have that goes into the commentators, I have like four other things about the commentators, but this is the one I'll I'll focus in on. Um, Eddie Olchik, did someone tell him that it's pronounced Timu, not Timo? He said Timo Solani the entire game. I feel like the entire game. So there are two names, I think on the ducks that always get pronounced differently, but it's a U. It's it Temu, but uh, well, it's it's a U when you write it in English. Who knows how it's written in Finland? Or yeah, in well, Finnish. it's not written in Finnish on the NHL yeah, media guide. But the people say Salani or Salani. That A is very uh, different between the two, and Getzloff or Getzlaff. But have you ever noticed Timo. that? Yeah. Hey, I, it falls in line with that. But it's just funny because neither uh, Pierre Maguire nor uh, Doc Emmerich were saying Timo. You got to think that Eddie Olchuk would... Didn't he play with him? Yes, in Winnipeg. Maybe he's like, I played with him back then. I know, I know his, that it's Timo. I know it's tame, er, Timo. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I'll just get into it since we're talking about the commentators. Pierre, The Pierre-Eddie <laughs> dynamic, just... Peak? Just so catty. Yeah. Just so catty. Pierre would constantly bring up a play as a, or, a, or a penalty and be like, hey, what do, you, what do you think of that, Eddie? And then Eddie would just not respond. <laughs> also, this other weird thing that I didn't know was a thing. Pierre would call, would switch between calling him Ed and Eddie the entire game. There was no constant. He, he settled into Ed as the game went along, but it, it wasn't always just Eddie. That is not something that I knew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to think that uh, Eddie Olchuk... Really just, just has a bit of a stain. You could just tell that Eddie Olchuk was absolutely irritated. At <laughs> one point, um, Pierre Maguire, there's a there's a tripping penalty at the, I think it's at the Ducks blue line. 
and it's oh, on the yep, box. Yep, yep. And Pierre Maguire blows up and says, "That's a phantom penalty, Hod," and crickets. Well, Eddie Olchik just doesn't reply, and then Doc Emmerich kind of has to step in and say, "Okay, we'll get we'll get the verdict later." And then, like five minutes later, comes back to Eddie Olchik and asks him what he thought about it. And then Eddie Olchik basically says, "Oh yeah, that was a perfectly fine call." <laughs> so, well, there's a very similar thing that happens when there was a too many men on the ice call, but it wasn't him yes. ghosting him. It was just, it it, it was just uh, Pierre just being completely wrong. He's like, "That's too many men on the ice." Yes, yes, I know exactly what you're talking uh, about. So yeah, that dynamic. Maybe I'm talking myself out of saying it didn't age well. It, it was one of the more entertaining it, things maybe, in this game. Maybe it did age well. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into our next category, the most rewatchable sequence. So the sequence that you could just throw on and uh, really enjoy, I guess. So well, there's two I'll, obvious ones. Well, you already talked about the goal, so I feel like, I mean, we can talk about it a little bit more, but I'll give you one. So to start the, the third period, the Ducks had an absolutely monster four-minute stretch where, you know, they were down 1-0 um, after that second period, had not been playing particularly well, and they just came out and forechecked their asses off, controlling that puck along the wall, cycling. Um, Corey Perry, Ryan Getzlaff, and Dustin Penner had kind of one of those vintage shifts that they had throughout this game, and eventually Penner draws a holding penalty off a, off a stick handle move. And that would be the same power play that Chris Pronger would nullify. But just that four-minute stretch, I think it kind of embodied what that Ducks team was really good at, which was just physically dominating the other team. Um, and not just, I mean, physically, but also with their with their kind of simple but effective style. Yeah, and you and I have talked about this a bit while watching the game, is that you're like, it's interesting watching good Corey Perry after seeing kind of the, the downturn of him because – this was this was kind of his coming out party. Um, this season or this playoffs was him really kind of asserting how good he was, and you can really see him starting to come into his own at 21 years old and starting to assert uh, the way he plays and the way he would drive the net. And you you still see some of the or you see some of the things coming out of him that are vintage Perry or what we can now look back on as being vintage Perry. But at this point in time, he was just kind of figuring that out or starting to kind of do those types of things. And so that was, I think, uh, not exactly aging best, aging worst or rewatchable, but I just think interesting after you kind of bringing up that shift and Mm -hmm. uh, that. So um, in terms of rewatchable, I think for me, the two sequences that I'm going to have to mention are the two goals for the ducks. I don't really know if there's anything else that sticks out to me personally after sitting down and watching that game for (laughs) however many times that was. Um, But those two goals, they're just completely rewatchable. The fact that um, the Ducks were down one nothing, this was kind of a stingy game from Detroit in terms of the Ducks getting chances, in terms of getting shots. Um, And uh, the fact that they were able to score on that power play and what was – Definitely, I think you could say a fluky goal with the shot from Niedermeyers. He's falling down, deflects off Lidstrom's stick, and just kind of floats perfectly into the corner over Hoshek's shoulder. Um, and then you have the game winner. Uh, what was it? About seven minutes left in uh, overtime. In the first overtime, you have uh, Andy McDonald chasing or chasing out Andreas Lilia from the back of the net, and uh, or sorry, Solani was chasing him from out back of the net, and. Uh, Andy McDonald kind of comes in and pressures from the front. Lilia uh, fans on the pass, goes to Solani. Solani gets the puck, goes forehand, backhand over uh, 
over Hasek water bottle. And to me, that is possibly the most iconic goal in Ducks franchise history. Um, um bold. I mean, it's bold, but it it I don't really know if there's another goal that there are other great goals that have been scored in some more highlight reel type plays, but in terms of being a beautiful play, in terms of the importance, in terms of everything kind of coming up to that, that is probably the most iconic goal in franchise history. Maybe the only one you'd put over it now that I think about it is probably off the floor on the board because of what that meant for Paul Korea. But in terms of importance, in terms of a whole lot of other things, because the off the floor on the board goal really didn't have a whole lot of importance in that game necessarily. It's more just the moment was iconic. If you factor kind of everything together, this goal you probably could put over that. And um, that goal might... Tamuslani has great moments and especially probably the 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 goal scoring record with the Winnipeg Jets is probably his uh biggest moment in terms of his uh historic moments things like that but I'd argue this is probably the biggest goal he ever scored in Ducks uh in a Duck sweater and probably his most iconic goal as a Duck and biggest goal yeah. and never every, every kind of uh superlative you can put on it for him as a Duck this is the moment that I think back on when I hear Tamus Lani. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he, he made this game happen in a way because with, with the goal and with the setup on Niedermeyer's game tying goal. Um, I mean the two, the two crucial plays in this game. Um, I've got another sequence, which I thought was pretty hilarious and kind of revealed the differences in the game from back then to now. Uh, so much more physical, so much more hitting, so much more finishing checks, and there was one sequence in particular in the third period where Chris Draper just absolutely blows up Corey Perry, just kind of catches him with his head down a little bit and launches him into the boards. And then obviously the Red Wings uh, or the, the Ducks don't like that, but the, the play keeps going. And then Danny Cleary hits, um, hits Jackman into the wall. And then Penner comes in and hits Kirk Malpe. And then, he comes in, you know, absolutely. You could say it was a charge. Kirk Malpe <laughs> was actually advocating for a charge. It and was so definitely then, a charge. And so then you have Pierre Maguire breaking it all down, and he's just going, he's kind of doing the, the breakdown. And then as he's narrating the hit by Penner, he goes, and Penner, hard on Malpe, hard on Malpe. <laughs> just like, you could just play that over and over again in the loop because it was so aggressive. But it also kind of showed, I mean, we all kind of laugh at Pierre Maguire and sometimes rightfully so, but the game was just so much different. And I think that that physicality is, it's a little lacking in today's game. You know, I'm not saying I want guys to get hurt and I want guys to take bad checks on each other, but that, that kind of livened the game up a little bit and it was yeah. a funny moment and it was, it, it, it just kind of showed how badly these guys wanted to win. Yeah. And this was a physical series. Um, Actually, another rewatchable sequence is probably that pronger, that that little pronger drag where he winds up for the slap shot. I forgot who it was on the Red Wings, but one of the guys went down and he just kind of dragged it around him and then wound up for a slap shot. Didn't end up going in, but just kind of that awareness to not fire it into the guy that's going down and just hold on to it. That's kind of one of the things that made Chris Pronger great. And so I think that that's a, a fun rewatchable sequence. Yeah. Another so. Talking about Chris Pronger and going into our category, the biggest heat check performance. So when I think heat check, I just think of a player who's kind of at the the top of his game and who 
seems to do whatever he wants. And Chris Pronger, coming back from a suspension, the first one of his very first plays of the game, I, I'm, I'm already forgetting who the player was in the Red Wings, but well away from the puck, just lights a guy up in open ice at center ice in the first period. Clearly a penalty. Doesn't, no call, no nothing, ho-hum. And he just goes about his day and has this is this important, great game. And the Ducks go on to win. The guy just didn't care. He just no. absolutely did not care. And I think that's what made him so entertaining and what made him uh, such a draw for fans is that he felt really authentic. You saw that in his interviews as well. You see that now when he talks, you know, on podcasts and different things like that. He was just, he was just the ultimate. I just don't give a damn guy. And that was that that was that was impressive. You would think you'd come back, right? Most people would come back after a suspension that could potentially cost their team a game. Uh, they would be a little cautious. Nope, I'm just going to go in and make an illegal hit right away. Doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> and so. then if if I'm going to use, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the biggest heat check is kind of the guys that are at the peak of their career and their biggest moments. Uh, this is kind of their prime, and you'll look back and this is it for them, right? Mm-hmm. So I got to say that entire third line. Maybe you yeah. would exclude Rob Niedermeyer because Niedermeyer, Rob Niedermeyer had some very good years um before this um where he was one of the leading scorers on various different teams but that entire line of Niedermeyer uh Paulson and Moen that was a big line for the Ducks that playoffs and they were matched up and this is one of those moments where I'm kind of bummed this was the last season or the the starting the next year analytics are available you can go back and actually look up shot metrics and location based and everything like that we can't actually do that for this season um, or any season prior to that because of the data that the NHL has available. But I'd be really curious to go back and look at some of the metrics that that line put up and see how they dominated play. Because at least from my recollection, they so they were always matched up against the other team's top line. Uh, Sammy Paulson, I know, was uh, typically matched up against Pavel Datsuk. And from what I recall, they were very dominant in that role. And so I'm very curious if that kind of checks out. Um, but to me, a guy like Sammy Paulson, who um, I don't think if you were to say that name to a lot of NHL fans, they would necessarily know who that is. You mentioned that name to all Ducks fans. They know him because of this run. And so I'd say that Sammy Paulson, Travis Moe, and Rob Niedermeyer, this is kind of their heat check. This is the moment that made their career. Yeah. No, I would agree. I mean, Travis Moen continued to get contracts and opportunities from different teams following this run because of this run. I mean, every team thought that you bring him in and you have this immediately good third line. And he had some good seasons here and there. I mean, he, he had a good, some good seasons with the Canadians that I remember, but I feel like it was all reputation based. Yeah. <laughs> it, w- it was absolutely reputation based. So yeah. yeah, that's actually a good one. Um, okay. Let's get into our most unanswerable questions about this. So, the one that immediately came to mind for me, not just this game, but what if the Red Wings won the series? Because if the Red Wings, you know, managed to hold on that lead, and which they very well could have, and then you know you they have two more cracks at 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 closing out the series, probably beat the Senators. Um, I just wonder how that Ducks team gets remembered 
Well, right? if if the Red if the Red Wings find a way to close that out. Also, if that would have happened, the Red Wings would would have made the Cup final in three straight seasons. Yeah, and could have. I mean, they they would have been back to back champions, assuming well, everything else would have been and, the same after that. And also, you forget oh five oh six. Even though they got beat in the first round, they were the best team in the West. I think. No, yeah, that's what I was saying. They were the first seed, um, and so. Yeah, that's the they had such a dominant run, and if they win that year, um, they open themselves up to being potentially back to back champions, potentially back to back to back champions. Um, but it's not so much about them as much as it is how this Ducks team would have been remembered to me. Um, I because I, I I feel like maybe it wouldn't have been, you know, all kind of rosy like it is now, right? I mean, there's well, no way it would have, but not even close in my opinion. I'm just kind of curious what happens after this. Because, um, how does that? Because the next year the Ducks were pretty good, but what happens with Scott Niedermeyer and Tammy Solani? Because if you recall, right. they took a hiatus after the season with Niedermeyer missing about half the season, Solani missing more than that, and then deciding mm-hmm. to come back and return. And so, how would what would have happened uh, then? Uh, would they have come back right away? Would a whole season of them had led to a different result uh, in oh seven oh eight? Um, mm-hmm. what would have been the impact there? Also, you have the fact that Solani more than likely would have never won a Stanley cup, which is a pure shame. Chris Pronger more than likely never would have won a Stanley cup. Yeah. Um, a lot of guys on this team that were all time greats that this was their first cup. How is Scott Niedermeyer's captaincy remembered? Is his number? Yeah. This is a genuinely big question. Is his number retired if they don't win this cup? I don't think so. I think that that is a big reason why people say his number should be retired is he won the cup as the captain. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so he's the only Stanley cup winning captain in franchise history. So yeah. Well, that, that, yeah. I think that, I think that them, them winning that, that series did a lot for certain guys legacy. I mean, I think Timo Solani would have always been remembered fondly, right. Just because of his kind of being so synonymous with the franchise, but you know, he was 36 that year and barely came back the year after. Did then play well into his <laughs> into his late 30s and up to age 43. But I mean, who knows? Does he still have as much of a of a hunger to come back and stick around if if it's not for that cup kind of being, uh, you know, giving him some motivation? So it's just something to think about. And well, I I agree with you that Niedermeyer's. Uh, legacy as a duck is totally changed if they don't win that. Well, year. and here's the other thing: what happens if the Ducks lose this? Does J. S. Shiger? I would assume he probably get he got a contract extension that summer. Does that still happen? Do the Ducks end up trying to make the shift to Ilya Brzgalov? Do mm-hmm. if they lose, like I don't know if you fully remember this, but uh, the beginning of that playoffs, Ilya Brzgalov started games because of yep. J. S. Shiger's son being born with an uh, eye uh, uh, disability. And so yep. Jay Shiger just wasn't in the mental state. And so Brzgalov started the first four games uh, of those playoffs, which he won three of those four. And then after losing the fourth, they made the shift to Jaguar. Um, Do the Ducks maybe shift away and and instead look at uh, Ilya Brzgalov as the starter uh, yeah. to try to get them through? And it's funny because Chris Pronger did a podcast interview recently where he talked about you know what went wrong for Ilya Brzgalov. And one thing that he talked about is that in Anaheim, he could always kind of get him out of his head, right? Could always kind of keep him on a straight and narrow path. Yeah. Um, and it was easier to do that because it was in Anaheim and because 
um, you know, there was so much less pressure. Well, and so even though he was a guy who put a lot of pressure on himself, um, it was a little easier to manage Anaheim. And he had a guy in Pronger to kind of keep him in line. But then he said that year in Philly where he had to miss the whole season due to a concussion the first time that that had happened, uh, that's where you saw Briz- he claims you saw Brzezgalov's career kind of spiral down because A, there was the pressure of the Philly media and B, there was nobody there to kind of check him essentially. And so maybe if maybe that Brzezgalov Pronger partnership holds longer in Anaheim if, uh, if, if they decide to go that route. Well, maybe also just a smaller market because look at when yeah. he was in Phoenix. Yeah, uh, exactly. The it seems Phoenix like he thrived, he thrived in those smaller markets. Yeah. And also on really good defensive teams, which that, didn't hurt either. True, true. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it, it, it is kind of a pivotal game when you think one, about it. For one sure. more unanswerable question. If the Ducks don't win this cup, do the Oilers offer sheet Dustin Penner still? They probably Ooh. do. I don't know. I, I'm not as, as familiar at, with that situation. Well, the so you, do you actually not remember this? No, I remember that happening, but I don't know like the what went into the decision. You if, remember? If, you remember uh, Brian Burke and Kevin Lowe and the whole barn situation? Oh yeah, I mean I remember like what okay, happened. Okay, yeah, but I don't. Well, yeah, I mean I think that everyone on that team got a lot more cup shine. Yeah, I mean well, that, got a ton of cup shine. Um, especially because I feel like the way the Ducks played at the time, it was a way of playing hockey that people wanted to get behind. Well, yeah, and the thing with that Ducks team, though, is Brian Burke went for it that year. Like, that's one thing that you cannot say about Brian Burke. Yes, he left the cap when he left the Ducks in kind of a tough situation that forced the Ducks to move pieces out, but he went for it, and it ended up winning a cup. How is Brian Burke remembered as a Ducks general manager if they don't win the cup, though? Because... Instead yeah. of instead of leaving the Ducks with a cap mess, but they had a cup, he's now just the guy who left the Ducks with a cap mess with no cup. Yeah. And now, granted, I think you and I kind of looking at this would probably say, well, he took a shot. At least he went for it. He took a of, shot with a good team, with a good nucleus. Yeah. And, and so I think that overall he'd probably be remembered in a similar fashion. But I think that's yeah. kind of an interesting thought there. Yeah, I mean, because Brian Burke is that that whole run was just the total opposite of Bob Murray, who was under his tutelage at the time. So does yeah. Brian Burke leave for Toronto if they don't win the cup? Does uh, he have the know. same shine on him? What happens to Randy yeah. Carlisle's career? There's a whole lot of what ifs here. Does yeah, because Ra- well, Randy Carlisle's entire career is almost built upon the fact that well, he won yeah. a cup. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the The whole Toronto thing, I mean, because you don't just end up in Toronto because, you know, you're kind of an under-the-radar name, at the, especially at that time. You, you're there because you've made a name for yourself and they're going to pay you for it. And with Brian Burke, cup-winning GM, plays that hard, heavy style, or brings in guys that do that, and then Randy Carlisle is the coach who was able to accomplish that. Um, if they don't have a cup to their name... Maybe that hire doesn't get made. Maybe Toronto. Maybe the Maple Leafs franchise is totally different today. There's a so, whole there's a whole lot of ripple effects. I mean, you can yeah. say similar things, for instance, about the 2011 Cup final between the Bruins and Canucks. Because after that, a lot of teams tried to mimic the big bag Bruins. What happens if the Canucks win? 
do people mimic well, that fashion more? Well, I mean, I think that you can say the same thing about this this series, this season, is that if the Red Wings win and go on to win the cup, there's less of that kind of uh, that that less of that wind of change driving teams to be way more physical, focus on size and look, the Red Wings were the best team of that era. And yeah, they had some bigger physical guys, but those were not the guys driving the bus yeah. at all. Um, and so it is kind of funny that teams would still gravitate towards that style, even though you'd have the best team in the league well, that's showing you how it's done. Yeah, <laughs> we, we didn't have metrics like we do now to be able to measure teams. And so it's funny. Yeah, but, you, you, but, no, but no, like but, cup, cup appearances. Well, no, my, my point is, though, with that is that you look at the metrics um, – for those Red Wing teams after this year, and they're historic in terms of yeah. how good they're. So right now, we probably consider a team that's fifty five percent Corsi four percentage to be a good team. The Red Wings were in the sixties. Yeah, high. 60s. No, they were they were dominant, and that's why I, I keep saying over and over, a guy like Pavel Datsuk in today's NHL plopped into today's NHL would be one of the five best players in the league. I mean, he was still dominant, but by the time the game really opened up, I think he was a bit more on the kind of tail end of his career um okay oh, sorry i just you had got any one, you I, got any other ones i just had something that came to me about that to go back to what aged the worst slightly i don't uh-huh. know why randomly this pops in my head i'm pretty <laughs> sure someone throughout the broadcast said that uh he went from hero to goat for andreas loya um that didn't oh, age yeah. well because of how we now term yeah. goat. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually true. That's a good one. Because goat back then was meant to be a bad thing. Now people would say it's greatest of all time. So sorry yeah. that randomly popped that, in my head. That here. that legitimately aged poorly yeah. because many people would watch that now and and totally misinterpret it. Yeah. So yeah, there you go, Jake Rudolph hitting it on the nose. Yeah. Um, final category. This is kind of a fun one. Uh, the Twitter take that you wish you had had at the time Wait, or that you would have had. We're, are we just skipping the that guy award? Oh, I think I did skip it. Well, let me just give my Twitter take because I, I have it teed up here. Oh, wow. This would have been my tweet. I just want Pierre Maguire to decide between Ed or Eddie. Wow. That's it. That's the tweet. Wow. <laughs> That's um, it. Uh, um. Mine would probably be on the note of what what I just said. Andreas Loya giveth and Andreas Loya taketh away. <laughs> or you could flip that. Andreas Loya taketh and then he giveth away. So the that guy award. So this is just that guy. The guy that watching this game, you just, you know, for whatever reason, they're that guy that you just gravitate to them, that you notice them, good or bad, Right or wrong, this is just that guy. So who is the your recipient for that guy award? So I thought the that guy award meant something different, but sure, I'll, uh, let's go with this. I thought it was uh, the guy that, uh, oh, I had completely forgot about that guy until now, which would have been Joe Motzko for me. Um, uh, let's go. So I'll do Corey Perry. Um, I just think. Shocker. What what I had mentioned where it's, it's it, fun watching kind of this kid develop into this person that would be one of the biggest players in franchise history and mm-hmm. you can kind of see those moments develop. And so I actually don't even think I was that big of a Corey Perry fan back then. And it's just now seeing that it's like, Oh, you can see those. And so my, I kind of gravitate uh, gravitated towards that because you see that development. Yeah. My, my pick would be the other twin, uh, Ryan gets I just think that 
he was already the best player on the team back then. Um, at the very least, the best forward and argument for the best player. Um, he was the most noticeable offensively because he was just so dominant with the puck on his stick. He was so good at holding onto it, so good at finding guys. And back then, you know, his skating stride still was probably below average by NHL, young NHL player standards. But compared to now, right, I mean, it's there's a pretty significant difference. Yeah. And so you give the Ryan Getzlaff brain, you give that hockey IQ, you give that some some greater legs as opposed to today some greater physical ability and you have the guy who had some dominant point producing seasons in the NHL. And I think that it was pretty apparent even again, at such an early stage in his career that he was already, if not the best player on his team, at least one of the two or three best players. Yeah. Um, because the thing is like with a well, guy like Solani, you know, was a very effective player, but you know, I think that, the strength of his game at that point wasn't one singular physical dominant trait. It wasn't really that fast, but could just kind of find open ice, could find the little seams where he could make a play, you know, anticipation. I mean, you look at how he broke up that clearing attempt to set up Niedermeyer for the game-winning goal, but that's more of a, that's a learned, that's A, both a learned veteran thing, and B, just something that you can have innately. Combine that with his, obvious skills you saw that on the game winning goal but to me Getzlaff was just clearly the most kind of physically dominant player all over the ice yeah um I want to ask you two questions kind of on that note that I think are kind mm-hmm. of interesting thoughts on Ryan Getzlaff specifically having watched this and kind of looking at some of the stats what's your response when people say well talking about Ryan Getzlaff specifically he was a passenger on that team he was not necessarily a driving force on that team. He was just a kid. So the fact that that was people say that as a knock against him as a potential Hall of Famer at because if you see Ryan Getzloff in the Hall of Fame argument, for instance, people that win a cup later in their career, I feel like get more acknowledgement for their role in that as compared to guys that win early. And I think that from what I've seen, when people try to say that he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. It's because they're like, well, even though, yes, he won a cup, he was a not a, a, a driver on that team. He was more of a passenger. So to that point, in this game, uh, the top minute uh, minutes played in that game, Chris Pronger played 35 minutes and 46 seconds. It did go to overtime, but that's still a crazy number. Francois Beauchemin, 35-17. Scott Niedermeyer, 35-13. And then Ryan Getzlaff, 28-46. The closest forward after that, Todd, Mar- Todd Marchant at 22-30 and Timu Solani, 22-19. So, yeah, maybe you could say some power plays in there, maybe boosted his numbers. But we're talking about a guy who is only in his second full season in the NHL, age 21, playing in the biggest game of the season, who is fifth on the or fourth on the team in ice time. I mean, that... That's pretty impressive. You don't you don't really see that every day. Especially, and I think it, especially it just from speaks an old to how school, good he already was. Especially from an old school coach like Carlisle. Sure. I mean, I, was he considered old school at that point? That's fair. Or was he just, fair, or was he just current school? Fair, fair point. Fair point. Um, yeah. But but yeah. So I think it, it it is impressive. I mean, it's also kind of funny looking at the Ducks, the way that they use their blue liners in this game because you had, like I just spelled out, you had Pronger. Boschman and Niedermeyer eating up all the minutes. 
And then you had all the way down the list, Sean O'Donnell with uh, 21, 23 uh, of ice time. <laughs> and then uh, Rick Jackman, who played just over six minutes and Kent Huskins, who played less than 10 minutes. So I think that just looking at how many minutes those guys had to play on the blue line, that's half the case to be made of why they deserve so much respect for that cup run, because those are, those are heavy, heavy minutes that they were playing. And kind of transitioning this into a little bit of current ducks talk um, on that note of Ryan Getzloff. It kind of hit me that him and Perry at this point in time were 21. Yeah. Putting up those types of points, 50 plus points, 40 plus points. Um, and that kind of pushed them into being first liners. And that's kind of what you expected from guys putting up that point total at 21 years old. And I think that contrasting with the, the kids on the current ducks team, you mm-hmm. can see that it doesn't like we've kind of said, none of the, the current ducks group, really look like they're bona fide first liners. And that kind of checks out when you compare that to how Getzloff and Perry were uh, back then. I mean, Max Jones is 21, turning 22, just like uh, Perry and Getzloff were that season. Same thing with Sam Steele, 21, uh, turning 22. Uh, Troy Terry was 22 this past year. Um, so it Jacob Larson, just uh, throwing that out there for you. A little bit of a different comparison, but also 22 years old. So... There's a lot of kids on this Ducks team that people have high hopes for, but I mean, none of them really kind of project out to be similar to Getzloff or Perry. And that's kind of where we've kind of seen them at. And so it's just kind of having watched Getzloff and Perry and coming to that realization that they were the same age then that mm-hmm. the Max Jones is the Sam Steele's, the Troy Terry's yeah. the same age of, as, as those guys. It, it was kind of jarring. Um, and, and also kind of, hit home what we've been thinking about those players for a while. So one thing I did want to point out to give, uh, to, to cut a little slack to Randy Carlisle. So Chris Kunitz, Chris Kunitz being hurt is probably the reason you see a Todd Marchant out there on the power play. Well, Andy McDonald wasn't on the first unit, so. Right, but you would assume that if Chris Kunitz was healthy and available, that he's eating up some of those minutes. Maybe. I mean, Todd Marchand was out there to take the face off, so Kunitz was not a center. Hey, just uh, you know, take your anti Randy <laughs> Carlisle bias and uh, you know, take it home with you. Um, one interesting little random note about this uh, this roster, just overall. Um, Travis Green was on this Ducks roster that season. Yeah, I think he got traded that year. Yeah. <laughs> Just, also, uh, Cur- NHL coach Curtis Glencross on the roster at some point that year. Yeah. Also, yeah, traded. there's a yeah. We're we're entering that phase now. We're names from about ten years ago. We're all coaches or executives or uh, podcast hosts like Kent Huskins, Shane O'Brien. Uh, yeah. So it is kind of crazy to see that. But yeah, this is a this was a really good team. It's definitely a team that is going to be remembered um, until maybe their shine will wear off a little bit the next time the ducks win the Stanley cup, whenever that will be. Um, but yeah, any closing thoughts about this game overall um, and just kind of that, that team. I, I think on this team overall, this was, this was, I think probably the best ducks team in the history of the franchise. Um, I think there have been a lot of very good teams since, but I think that this team was built in a way to win. And 
I mean, having guys like Pronger and Niedermeyer on the blue line, it just kind of sets the team up for success in a way that uh, I don't think they had been since. And I think it becomes harder and harder as the, the cap has become a fact more and more of a factor. Um, and so I, I think it was fun going back and it was a trip down memory lane for me, which is always fun. Yep. So on that note, we are going to wrap up here. Um, hope everyone has been keeping safe. Hope everyone is doing well. Uh, if you want to support the show, uh, make sure to check us out. Uh, first off, the website, crashthepond.com. Uh, make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review there. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And uh, another great way to support us, a little bit more of a commitment, patreon.com slash crashthepond uh, for a dollar a month. You can join our patrons-only Discord chat. And so that's a monthly pledge for $5 a month. You get two bonus episodes a month. And we just did a really fun one, actually, where we went through uh, the past NHL season, handed out some awards, picked all-star teams, and it was a really fun episode. And that's the kind of content that we bring over there, kind of looking a bit wider at the league, but still with the Ducks, uh, a Ducks bent. So you still get your Ducks content. Don't worry. Um, you can find us on Twitter. Jake is on Twitter at ReindeerGames91. I am on Twitter at Felix underscore Sicard. You can find the podcast at a bunch of different places, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube. Um, and of course, you can follow the site itself on Twitter at CrashThePond. Um, if you have any issues as we transition over now to our new platform, people have been kind of chiming in on Twitter. If they have any uh, listening issues, just I just gave you the ways to contact or, us. Get at us, and and we'll we'll get it fixed for you. Or it's in my Twitter bio, Twitter uh, bio, but I'll also throw it out here. But you can uh, contact us at uh, the email is Jake at CrashThePond.com. Um, so if you have issues and that's the easiest way to reach us, uh, feel free to do that and shoot us an email, and we'll get to it. And I do want to mention um, the way that you can support the show also is with Apple Podcasts and doing a review on Apple Podcasts. That is something that is completely free to you. And we actually got a new review uh, a little bit ago uh, from Casey James Dickerson that said, uh, five stars, great ducks pod. Love the different opinions. Makes for a fun listen. Jake and Felix seem to know what they are talking about when it comes to hockey. So I like to think we know what we're talking about. Seem, seem. That's good. It's all about appearances. Yes, yes. We, we put on a good facade. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, thanks for listening, everybody. And we will catch you at the next episode. Bye. Bye.